Welcome to Both And, a sexual violence prevention podcast. I'm Jess Clark, Director of Prevention for the New Mexico Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs and your host. This episode is a first for Both And. While all the conversations we have in this space could go on for days because I sure do like to talk, never before have I come into a recording feeling so very clear that at least two episodes would be needed to even begin to cover a topic. That's exactly what happened here when faced with, well, I chose it, but still faced with trying to talk about restorative justice with nuance and care. And luckily, I have two incredible guests to bring you with us. Anusha Jawani, a certified professional coach, community organizer, poet, and facilitator based in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Ana Maria Hurtado, a collaborator for restorative practices in Colombia through the Ahimsa Collective. In this two-part episode, we address the basics, some misconceptions I had going into this conversation, personal experiences as a participant and facilitator of restorative justice process, and how the common application of restorative practices could impact our world in both deeply personal and systemic ways. This is part one of a two-part episode. The next part will be out in a few weeks. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Welcome, welcome to both and. I have two guests today that I'm really excited about, both connected to the Ahimsa Collective, which we'll talk about a bit. Um, But can you each introduce yourself? Yeah. Uh, So hi, my name is Anusha Jawani. I am a queer South Asian immigrant living in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I work as a BIPOC life coach and facilitator. And I'll pass it to Ana. Hi, so my name is Ana Maria Hurtado. I am Colombian. I live here in Bogota, Colombia. I am a therapist and I facilitate processes around restorative justice, like in different different kinds of processes, but all within that framework. And can you define restorative justice for us? Before we even get into origin stories, let's start with a not a textbook definition, but but your understanding of restorative justice so that we're not getting into concepts before we've laid them out for folks. So can you define that for us? Sure. Um, so it's a, an alternative paradigm to address harm in ways where the person who experienced the harm is at the center. So It's easier to describe and define restorative justice comparing it to the other type of justice that we're used to, where it's like, oh, what happened? Who did it? What is the punishment? In restorative justice, the first question asked is, who suffered the harm? What are their needs? And these needs become the obligations for the person who caused the harm. So... This is all about relationship. This is all about restored, restoring humanity, dignity. It's all about we not being the worst thing that we've done, nor the worst thing that have happened to us. And really sitting with the whole spectrum of what it means to be human. No? So that's, that's restorative justice. And that's my understanding and how I live it. 
That's a good definition. Thank you. Anna, Anna, you're making me tear up. Oof. Yeah. I was reading We We Do This Till We Free Us, and Miriam Kaba, of course, talks so much in there about uh, the criminal legal system and the prison industrial complex, and that, of course, we can't talk about restorative justice without first naming the the contrary system, which is the prison industrial complex. And there, there was this quote in there that I thought was so good. And, and she said that the cages can find people, not the conditions that facilitated their harms or the mentalities that perpetuate violence. And I love so much of how, how you all talk about restorative justice is looking at those the, the conditions, the interpersonal conditions that exist within, of course, systemic conditions that made that harm come about and creating healing within those conditions um, and with an understanding of those conditions, which I think is what allows us to be, I think, as you said so well, just human. So I would love to understand uh, more about how each of you got into this world of restorative justice. So, Ana Maria, because you you work for Ahimsa, can you first do yours, and then Anusha, I want to know how you got involved. And tell us a little bit about Ahimsa, period. Perfect. Yeah, so it's a very broad question, because I, I feel that I arrived to restorative justice from a deep longing of the soul, even though I didn't know that what my soul was longing had a name. <laughs> and so I think that I had been preparing all my life to get here because I'm all about justice. I feel very uncomfortable when I um, sit in front of, of unfairness. Like fairness is very, very important to me since I was little. But I think that I can track it down uh, to 2010, 2011. I have, I had a, after I had a really bad accident, I feel that it was like the beginning of the end of, of the way that I identified myself in the world and the way that I understood the world. And I went through a very profound personal crisis all around lack of meaning. And in that process, I kind of like, felt that I need to I needed to empty myself and put the pieces back together. And so there were many parts that I was like, ah, no, I'm not renewing vows to that. And so there were like empty spaces that needed to be filled. And one of them was definitely I wanted to help people. And so my undergrad was business and finance, so nothing to do with what I was about about to start, which is a master's <laughs> Very different. <laughs> Master's degree on East and West Psychology at CIS, California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, California. And so I started the program. And while I was there, my family here in Colombia was violently assaulted. So there was like, of course, initial shock and sadness and helplessness. But as it started to fade away, I started to sit with two things. One of them was how I had perpetuated or contributed to the brutal social inequality here in Colombia in ways that even even just as a bystander. 
And understanding that at a visceral level, I get it how someone feels that they have the right to take away from me. Like, I get it. I get it because of the huge gap that at that time. So, so my, like my family were like, oh, we want incarceration and all that. I was like, that was, that's not going to help us heal. And so, um, synchronistically and in a beautiful way. And that's why I really associated with a, with a calling of my soul. There was this class offered at school called restorative justice and peacemaking practices. And I didn't know what restorative justice was, but I was like, ah, the, the, the peace agreement had, had already been signed between the FARC and the government here in Colombia. And I was like, yeah, I will eventually come, come back to my country. So it was beautiful because I was like, oh my God, what my soul was needing has a name. It's restorative justice. And it was all based on a panel with speakers who had committed crimes, who had been incarcerated without having committed the crime. People who, who suffered um, harm, that they woke up from a coma and they were like, I need to forgive the person who did this to me and then fell back into a coma. So all of this experience, like all this nuance that I was like, oh my God, this is where my soul feels more comfortable, like in the messiness of life. And so the teacher who taught that class is Sonia Shah, who is the initiator of the Ahimsa Collective. And so basically, three months later, she invited me to a training down in Fresno, where the second day of the training or the third day of the training was inside a state prison, where they ran a program called Realize with incarcerated um, men at the moment, at the time, to really address the harm and understand all the conditions because, and this is definitely something that Sonia would say, and I feel that it's the philosophy behind Ahimsa Collective, which is like the 200% responsibility. And it's got like, yes, it's 100% responsibility and no harm occurs within a vacuum, no? It's like, it, 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 it is within the context, within the culture, within the family, within, within everything. And we need to understand exactly what the conditions were where we made that horrible decision that harmed someone else and i feel that that's the only way for to comply to the no repetition of the restorative justice because only if i know exactly what was happening in my life the moment that i took that horrible decision and caused so much harm then i can really commit myself to not doing it again and so that's that thank you Anusha, how did you become involved with the Hamsa Collective? Yes. Well, first, I just want to say, Anna, like everything you said felt like poetry. And I just want to thank you for like your intense vulnerability in this space and for trusting us. Oh, I feel like I could just listen to both of you talk <laughs> for the remainder. But so I was working um, at a survivor led organization called New Mexico Asian Family Center, where they help survivors of domestic violence and sexual abuse. And a lot of the, I guess, ways of arriving to justice was through the criminal legal system, through the lawyers, through orders of protection, divorces, that sort of thing. My job title was Ending Gender-Based Violence Coordinator, which is very lofty and vague. 
And being a survivor myself, I was suffering from PTSD and was searching for ways in which I could do my own process. And working there really gave me the resources through the coalition to talk to folks about what potential solutions could be. And um, I quickly realized that the criminal legal system would cause more harm uh, for myself, for my community, for the folks who committed harm. I also come from the Ismaili Muslim faith, where our sort of culture, our community, is very much involved in the same values as restorative justice. And yet, even in the religious framework, there was no current practice of RJ. It was very much mediation, lawyers, arbitration, you versus the other person. And um, I had many, many conversations uh, with my dad, with other advocates, and other folks doing sort of this type of work of what can we, what can happen? What's possible? Do we create something? Around this time, this was right at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought that I would reach out to different organizations uh, in the US and in Canada, like doing this type of work to see what would be possible. Even then, I didn't have, I didn't know what true RJ could look like. In my head, it was still that like, almost courtroom picture, but it was a different room. We would all be sitting in a circle, but it was still like side A, side B. It wasn't, I hadn't visualized what it would actually be like. So luckily the FMSA collective, Sonia responded to my email and connected me to Julian and Anna, and they were able to facilitate my restorative justice process. I love that for both of you, you came to this work, you came to the restorative justice space through this need for healing outside of what had been previously imagined. For so many of us, the only path to healing in dominant culture in response to harm is the criminal legal system. We put all of the healing eggs in the criminal legal system basket, and it because it fails survivors of so many forms of violence over and over and over again. And because we've seen it, even before someone is a survivor of violence themselves, we've seen what happens. Um, we've seen what happens through media reports, through serialized shows, all of those pieces. And so I think it, I think it takes, it both takes an incredible amount of imagination to want something different and then go actively seek it out like both of you did and that kind of imagination I think is in all of us given the right circumstances that Anusha because you were already in the the, the movement and sexual violence you you knew that something else was out there and then you just had to figure out what that was and I wonder, I, I think so, one of the reasons I'm so excited about this conversation is that I want to kind of spark that, that imagination in so many more people. I, not that I can do that, but I want this conversation to help so many more people get curious about what else is out there, what else is possible, that we don't have to be locked into this only system. 
this one system. Anusha, as you were talking about through your work at the Asian Family Center, you were working with the tools that were available to you to serve survivors. And now so many more, so many agencies are trying to find other tools outside of orders for protection and divorce and the criminal legal system. What else can we do? It's a lot. It's, it feels kind of daunting, but I think in some really lovely, exciting ways as well. So, Anna-Maria, you, you laid out restorative justice a bit and why it's specifically important to you. Can you go a little further into that in what the process looks like um, and the, the whys behind it? And then, Anusha, I'd love to hear from you what that was like for you in your own process. Sure. So um, I guess that I need to give some more context around Ahimsa Collective. So uh, basically when the pandemic started, Sonia and, and, and the beautiful souls that, that make up the Ahimsa Collective family, which by the way, you should take a look at it. The website is ahimsacollective.net. We will put it in the show notes prominently. Are you going to get to see all these beautiful faces of people who are showing up in the world in such a coherent way and, and, and really feeling that, that we can do it differently. So, so when the pandemic started, they, we, we, we couldn't go back into prison inside to continue with the program with Realize, which was kind of like the, the main, the main kind of like focus and, and doing within the Ahimsa. They're like, we have all these facilitators who are trained and know how to do this work. And so they opened this um, thing called Restorative Justice for the Community. So we already had the VOD dialogues, the victim-offender dialogues, which we would love to change the name and use different words, but that's how it's uh, known and understood. So this is kind of like similar to the VOD, but it's, but it's people who are both free, right? None of them are incarcerated. None of the two people like involved are incarcerated. And so this is restorative justice for the community where we have this uh, intake form where people kind of like, just like, hi, I'm Anusha and this is the situation. And I would love to have like this process facilitated. And so people get to say if they would like to have like, I don't know, a, a particular type of facilitator, a uh, person of color or uh, by like whatever, whatever they feel that would help to enable like a safer place for them to go into it. With that alone, mm. folks in accessing services in the criminal legal system, you don't get to pick mm. Who is going to help facilitate that process for you and someone who might understand your experience in a different way? That is huge. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and people get to choose because I feel that like there are certain conditions that enable healing in a more in a more subtle way. Yeah. I don't know if I, I can say that healing doesn't happen in any other way, but definitely it is more subtle and there's much more magic and much more kind of like space for all the invisible layers to come up and to show up in this kind of processes. Yeah, it sounds like there was consent at every level 
Mm. Like, I had forgotten about that part. Like, I had forgotten the part where, like, Julian called up and was like, is it okay? I'm white. Is it okay? And I'm male. So that, I think that consent plugged in at every point Mm. is, like, already radically different from the other. Mm, yes, yeah. Uh, Julian, he's, uh, he was my co-facilitator in this specific process with Anusha, which I love and adore. And it was just so great mm-hmm. to, to work with him in this process. So, so yes, it's all about kind of like what the person needs. Again, it's what the person needs. And we're very creative and there is a lot of imagination, like the imagination that you were speaking about just at the beginning, because I feel that that's what's broken in the world. Our, our, our capacity to imagine different ways. And so it's so, it, it seems so scary, the unknown, that we're like, ah, no, let's continue doing the way that we've always done it. And it's kind of like we're stuck there. And so we needed to be very creative. We've gone far beyond to, to make processes happen. And, and, and it was all based on what Anusha was needing, what Anusha was wanting. And I remember, and I'm sure that you're, you're going to say it because you always say it because she was like sometimes frustrated. And I was like, she was like, so what do we do? What do you want? <laughs> what do you need? And she was like, oh, God, please, some guidance. <laughs> But really, it's kind of like what the people like it. The, the, she was at the center. Mm. She was at the center. And, and Sonia Shah, initiator of the Hemsa Collective, always says we go at the speed of relationship. And that's what we do. And that's how, that's how it's done. And, and of course, each process has its own particularities. So I can say like, so first we do this and then this and then this. No, it's kind of like, we need to be really creative with what we have. The agility that you all have in the process that is built into the process seems to be so important because as you were saying, Anusha, it's about that consent. It's about having agency in the process. And so many survivors, and again, I know I keep comparing to the criminal legal system, but it's has to be a part of the conversation. Um, but so many survivors, part of the harm that is done by the system after trying to use the system to create repair, so much of the harm that is done is because survivors are not given a whole lot, if any, agency once that process is initiated. And that's true not just in the criminal legal system. That's also true in uh, university responses to sexual assault through Title IX is once a mandated reporter in the school, so any you know professor, anyone who's not a confidential reporter or a confidential advocate, that they have to move forward with a process whether their survivor wants it or not. And I know there are reasons for that. And... It we're taking this moment where someone has had their agency taken from them, their choice taken from them, and then said, okay, well, here's more choice that we're going to take from you. You get fewer decisions now and expect that to be healing or helpful. And it's just not um, for so many people. And of course, survivors are not a monolith. There's no one survivor experience, all of those pieces. I just wanted to add something. I remember when... I was working with a lawyer from the coalition, um, Claire Harwell, and we we had approached we had approached the DA to just kind of at the beginning of the process to see what would be possible. And for me, I mean, the violence had occurred years ago, 
Right. So then statute of limitation comes into play. Multiple states um, where it happens came into play. And the DA was like, I need a list of all the different sexual violence that occurred and the date that it happened. And we were like, are we going to really like I had to be like, am I going to create this fucking timeline? And, you know, Claire was holding such deep space for me even then of like. Yes, and, you know, is this something you want to do? And we did it initially. We did it, and this was back in 2019 before I had even decided to do RJ. And it was so traumatizing. And nothing came of it. Even after doing that, of quant- even after quantifying the violence, we just never heard back. We never heard anything back. Gosh, that line, quantifying the violence, that's, that's intense. Because how do you, you put something on paper, but how does anything you write down on Mm. paper with dates and acts Mm. ever do justice Mm. to the actual harm? Mm -hmm. And Anusha, how many, how many agencies, because I remember that you contacted so many people, you sent so many emails similar to to Ahimsa and we were like yeah. we we'll respond that's also part of, yeah. of the re-traumatizing process mm. so what was that re- that restorative justice process like for you Anusha yeah and you don't you can go into as much or as little detail as possible but really getting to the question why why was the process important to you yeah um so what I knew about RJ and TJ is that it's very community centered. So the idea is that every person in the community, in the circle is valuable, right? And worthy, and they are not the harm that they've committed. And what's so powerful is the whole community would come together when this was practiced, right? In indigenous circles um, to aid in the healing, uh, to aid in the accountability, So it wasn't like, oh, you did this thing, you're shunned, right? And so that is really what appealed to me of like, can we do this together? Because in in my religious community, when something happens, it just is pushed under the rug and nobody's helped. Violence continues to occur and survivors aren't believed. So I was like, what if this existed? And the process with Ahimsa, as Anna mentioned, it was so much of me led that I was not expecting that because I am, because I've grown up in these frameworks, uh, in all of these systems. And so I remember, you know, Anna and Julian, we introduced ourselves, we built rapport, we talked about what was needed from me and that was actually probably the hardest thing was figuring out what does accountability look like to me before even reaching out to the other person i think we spent several of our zoom meetings trying to figure that out and trying to trying to consider what healing would look like and they just held space that was very unique. I'd never experienced that before. Uh, that sense of community that these facilitate facilitators are standing in for your community and they don't even know you. 
right? They don't know you before you start the process. That was super powerful. I remember there was a lot of anger, frustration at that question of like, what do you want to do next, right? Uh, you get to create this. So we we defined what accountability would look like. The next step was to contact the person. I wanted to do two processes. We were able to contact one person out of the two, and that person responded, right? And so that person, I had my process, and they started working with the other person. And I was like, the other person is down to work on this. Let's do it. Let's have a meeting. And they're like, no, we will not. We would not have you to meet in the showdown, right? Until we've worked with this person. And that also is very uh, different from in my head what I expected. I expected I would have to go through the whole like fighting with this person and proving that would happen to me. Almost like mediation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? Forcing them to acknowledge what happened. Instead, Anna and Julian, they took that labor. And they went in and they did a parallel process with this other person. And I I was like, what's happening? I was like sending the emails and they were like, we, you know, it's happening. Uh, we're not going to tell you. We're not going to update you on this process. Actually, something that I missed before this person could even start the process, Julian was like, we need you to sign a confidentiality form that you would not say this person's name and say like what happened right out in public and that was something that i really struggled with because i was like i'd be giving them power again i wouldn't get to i wanted that like in my head that justice that shaming thing right that was still in my head even though i wanted to do rj those old frameworks were still there but they explained like you know they helped me understand that why would someone admit what they did and admitting is like very important before moving on to healing, but it, admitting and acknowledging, why would they do that when, if they admit it, they could get punished, right? They could go to jail, all of those things that are part of our criminal legal system. And so signing that confidentiality form was really difficult, but then it led to all of this incredible participation and healing for this person. And so like, I get it. My understanding bef before learning about about your process, my understanding of of any kind of restorative justice process was that it was so public because that's mm -hmm. the only kind of process I've ever witnessed was incredibly transparent, incredibly public, and the the public process was a part of the deal mm -hmm. that that is what made it an accountability process. And so hearing about this was a big shift for me in going, oh, why did I assume that it had to be a public accountability process mm -hmm. in order for it to be accountability or in order for it to be healing? And and my brain, of, of course, first goes to accountability as the primary goal um, because I think so many, so many of us have been indoctrinated into this thinking that, that addressing a harm caused means more harm caused. Mm -hmm. And there's no way around that whether that is public shaming or the criminal legal system or any of these already existing structures in my brain, it was, it has to include this in order for it to be successful. Mm -hmm. And hearing about your process and, and how Ahimsa works has really challenged that in me. Mm -hmm. That why do I associate healing with harm? Mm -hmm. That my healing has to come at the expense of another person's mm -hmm. harm um, because they harmed me. 
And I think that's going to be a, a huge leap for a lot of us to, to shift our thinking around that. Even for so many of us who say, no, we do not believe in the prison industrial complex. We do not believe in, ah, da, da. we want alternative processes, but then we create those processes that, that replicate that harm in different ways. So I, I fully understand why that was so hard for you to sign that confidentiality agreement. Yeah, I, I want to add to that because it's, it's, it's all about making it a safe space for everyone. No, and it's not about continuing now the shaming and all that because shame doesn't get us anywhere. Yes, we need to have remorse. Yes, we need to feel guilty, but no shame because shame is like, I am bad. And so if I am bad, I can't imagine myself being anything, anything different but bad, right? So I don't even have a capacity to repair someone else because I am that horrible thing that I did. No, it's like I'm angry at what I did, not angry at my, like I hate what I did, but I don't hate myself. Yes. So it's kind of like going, getting to that sweet spot. And, and now that you're saying it's like, for example, I work also here in Colombia within the, all the aftermath of a peace agreement process. And, and it's very similar to what happened in South Africa with the truth commission and all that and the need for truth. But that need, that truth and that accountability does happen in public. And in my experience, that is like to a point, yes, it, it satisfies some needs. But at the same time, people need to be ready to witness accountability. So, so we're not doing anything while the people are ready to be accountable and recognize the harm and see the pain, the other person and all that. When the moment that they are accountable, the big part of, 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 of the Colombians here are not ready to witness accountability. But again, at the same time, I feel that it is important also. There is a very p important piece, especially when it's like a country thing and it's a war for more than 70 years and all this. Like, yeah. Big system. Uh -huh, exactly. So, so, so it's so different, like the restorative justice at the systemic level and at this individual level. Mm -hmm. When there are a group of victims mm -hmm. versus one person who experienced the harm. Because, of course, when, 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 when people who, victims are, Are, are in a group like there's always going to be insatisfaction always because what i need is not exactly what the other person needs even though we experience the same harm no so it's, it's just so messy and so complicated and so beautiful at the same time because because when people anyway show up it's just it gives me hope it really gives me hope and that there's I love that you can lean into the hope there and just that place of being able to hold so many things all at once. Mm -hmm. And that, that what I'm hearing from you is there is no one right process mm -hmm. that, that, that public accountability piece comes when it needs to come, but it is not always the answer. And I think that's going to be, yeah, a, a big part of that shift in thinking is, <laughs> There are so many possibilities here outside of our one pre-prescribed path forward. 
that actually now we have lots of paths forward that look different depending on the individual need. Yes, there is no ABC to restorative justice. And I think that that's why it's so frustrating for many people. And it's so scary for many people. They're like, ah, let's not even try it because let's go to punishing because it's so much easier. And what is the crime? This is the punishment for that. And done. Next, next, next. This is kind of like, okay, let's sit down and let's see how we've all participated. Have We have all contributed for these conditions to actually enable this harm, to actually occur. It fulfills that need in us to, to go immediately to an individual solution for, an indi for what we perceive as an individual problem. And, and punishment is a quick individual solution for an individual problem uh, when, gosh, thinking really knowing that harm is a community problem with individual actors and therefore requires a community response with an interpersonal response is, it's just so much harder. It's so much more involved. Yes. But there's hope in it. So, so on that, that hope, Anusha, so you did the, the confidentiality piece. It was big and hard and they were the, the person who, who caused harm was having a, a parallel process with you. And what was the resolution? I don't even want to use the word resolution. I feel like yeah. we end up having to have this this period on it. But mm -hmm. what what was the end of that process or yeah. the, the formal end of that process like? Yeah. So after I think about three months, I I heard from Julian and Anna, and they said that you know let's let's meet, let's have a meeting. In that meeting, they introduced a letter. Um, and well, actually, first they said we have a letter. You don't have to read it. Uh, we can either read it to you. You don't even, if you want to put it off, we can put it off. Again, that consent was there. It wasn't like this person has something to say to you and we're going to do what they want. Like, hey, we have this thing. Are you in a place right now where you can receive this thing? Right. Mm -hmm. So I think I had Julian read it out loud to me. Um, and then he also sent me a copy later. And in this letter, the person acknowledged the harm, which was one of, and so it kind of followed this template of what I had needed. This was, I guess, crafted by the person, but also, you know, facilitated by Julian and Anna. And so in that way, it was very sweet because they had both sides, right? I can't even imagine how hard it was for them to hold all of that, but the result was amazing. So they had, they had apologized. And uh, so they acknowledged, apologized. Um, they said that they would tell their current partner that they had committed harm in the world and that, so that they could together figure out how to move forward. They said they would start therapy. And they also said that if I ever wanted to continue the friendship or relationship, they would be open. So I think when I got this, I was like, I had like an out of body experience <laughs> and like I and Julian were on zoom and they were just like, they were chilling. They were patient. They let me do whatever. They let me cry. They let me like breathe. They were like, we're here, you know, we're just, we're here. We're witnessing. And it, it was very surreal, but it, it was also very, it caused a lot of happiness, but also I never expected something positive to come out of this process, even though 
I had so many hopes for it. I never, I never let myself be like, oh yeah, something good is actually a possibility. It's like crossing an invisible threshold where, mm. where we relate in a different way. And, and yeah. And, and for example, with Anusha, she was like, no, I don't want to meet him. So maybe a letter. And so it's like, so, you know, it depends on what the person meets. Some people are like, I want to die like on an in-person conversation. Da, 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 da. And, and so, yeah. And working with that letter, it was like, wow. Like it was like, cause you kind of like, we were like from the beginning until the end with this person and we saw their process and their grapplings and what they were, you know, there's the struggles, what they grappled with. And so it's just, and to read that letter, of course, like we're always like, shoot, like, please help us God not to do more harm. Right. <laughs> and this is what we have. And, and who are we to say, like, no, it's not good enough, or it's ready, or it's not ready? You know, it's it's so difficult to know when, like, yes, this is it. And and we have kind of, like, buffered all of the uh, possibilities of, of further harm and re-traumatization. And at the same time, it's like, shoot, okay, it's, it's really, it's really, it's, it, it takes a, a lot of hope and trust in, in the process and in the people and, and, and trusting Anusha enough uh, and her capacity to receive that. Because sometimes we, we get stuck in, in, in not imagining good things happening to us. And so it's beautiful to see all, also that capacity grow and, and, and be able to receive. It sounds like it's just this, it's a, it's this incredibly curated process, but not to the point where it becomes inauthentic, where you're not curating that letter to something that Anusha could receive only well to the point that it's not actually what this person's experience was, because that's not healing. That's not real connection and accountability even because you're taking again the the process away from the people and which is what so much of our current processes are it's taking the process away from the people and creating creating paths that are are pre-prescribed that have so little room for individual needs and and ways of ways of being in the world that could actually lead to some form of healing and just that apology piece. We've talked about this in this podcast a few times, gosh, many times. I, it's amazing that it's taken this long for us to have a conversation on restorative justice, just because it's come up over and over and over again um, from the very first episode. But actually in the very first episode, I talk about uh, the monster myth with this brilliant educator named Heather Imry. And we talk about how, when we have, the quote unquote rapist as monster, as the image in our heads, um, how much harm that causes because it makes it hard for us to identify harmful behaviors in others, but also really hard for us to identify harmful behaviors in ourselves because I'm not a monster. I'm bad or I'm not bad. I'm a good person. And because we have this good person, bad person, good evil way of thinking about so many things. And one piece of that, it is also so harmful to survivors in that so much of what so many people have been harmed want is 
an acknowledgement that it happened and an actual apology. And those two things are really hard to come by when our structure is good, evil, free, you're in a cage. That's our structure. There's no space for apology or accountability in that. Yeah, I want to add some things. I think what was so interesting was like, so for those few months, I didn't know what um, this other person's process was, right? And I I had no idea. And then afterward, I think we talked more. I've talked more to Anna and Julian, and I've heard that like they were the ones who were almost like therapists for this person. This person is coming in and hearing after I think a few sessions, they've built rapport and they haven't told him what this is about. And then after I think third or fourth session, they're finally like, okay, like Anusha, you know, this is what happened in Anusha's view. And I, and we, uh, Anna, Julian and I, we, we had all written, well, I guess they helped me write my version of what happened. Right. And at the time, many, many years ago, this was like gaslighted. Uh, this was like, you know, victim blaming was happening. Gaslighting was happening. It became a very public slut shaming. Right. So there was so much in that, in my narrative of what happened to me, what happened to my body, what I've been dealing with the last 10 years or so, which is a lot, right. For someone to randomly get. And I think, you know, Anna has shared a little bit about like this person was, didn't understand what consent was, right? Didn't necessarily understand the impacts of patriarchy. And they had to kind of help guide this person in, and give them all of this like education, which I thought in my head I would have to do, right? In the courtroom. But actually they were able to do this over a longer period of time after having built rapport and giving this person space to process, right? So I think the way that they worked with me is exactly how they work with this person because the idea is this person could also be a survivor of so many systemic things, so many issues, right? I think one of the most crucial understandings I've had is like people who commit harm have their own trauma a lot of times, right? Like Anna had said, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. And so I think it was incredible that they were able to, to you know, find this humanity, but also hold so much space for someone in this way. So because this conversation is, there's so much to it, we're actually going to do this in two parts. So we just talked about the process, why restorative justice is an incredible alternative to the systems that we have had for so long. Um, and in way, in, in some ways, as you were talking about, Anusha, it's actually going back to systems that were um, before colonization and before practices were sublimated in, in so many communities. When we come back next time, we're going to talk about uh, some barriers to implementing restorative justice in the movement to end sexual violence or the anti-sexual violence movement or the movement to end gender-based violence, whatever we're going to call it. Um, oh, and this idea about around success, what makes restorative justice successful versus unsuccessful? Is that something we're even going for success in the context uh, that so many of us think about it? 
So next time on Both And, we're going to continue this conversation with Ana Maria and Anusha. Super looking forward to it. So hold on. It'll be out in a couple of weeks instead of a month. Thank you for listening to Both And. Both And is a project of the New Mexico Coalition of Sexual Assault Programs, and this episode was made possible by the New Mexico Department of Health. Both And is produced by me, Jess Clark, and edited by the fabulous Daisha Clay at Hello Fort Studios. Intro music was written by Michelle Shamuel and the logo designed by Alex Ross Reed. You can find links to the articles and papers we mentioned in the show notes. And as always, you can reach me with questions, comments, and even disagreements at jessc at nmcsap.org. Thank you, and I'm so looking forward to next time.